You are listening to Uncanny Landscapes, Excursions into the Otherwise, with Justin Hopper. So this is July from the year at Sharpham. Bright chop at blackness, a splash of sudden sun, a season we've almost forgotten the name for. Voices clatter across the water, clouds flutter, the far corners, buzzard circle, and sometimes an osprey. The tide turns, the wind against us, night rose, toward shifting shadows, blister on oar hand, surrender feels right. Welcome to Uncanny Landscapes, a series of conversations around and excursions into landscapes of the otherwise. You've just heard today's guest, J.R. Carpenter, reading sections from the month of July from her project, This is a Picture of Wind. More of J.R. very soon. And I'm your host, Justin Hopper. I'm speaking to you from a small room in Dedham Vale, an area of outstanding uncanny beauty in the east of England. It is my goal through the conversations and accompanying detritus that comprise these podcasts to determine and slowly, poorly, define their subject matter. The wind picked up again today, here in the uncanny vale. A few days is all we usually get between winds, and even then it's present. Not present like, of course, there's wind, but present like a presence, an active part of the conversation. When it's low, it's a stalker wind, the rustling zephyrs of footsteps and murmurs that keep you looking over your shoulder along a shady path. When it's up, it's an East Anglian beast. One year the greenhouse was lifted over the fence and into the farmer's field, traveling hundreds of meters along the way. The wind picked up again today, and I'm glad for it. Our recent situation has made me unwittingly monotheistic. Where once my pantheon included chalk cliffs and busy streets, and scruffy hillsides and underground platforms and airport security queues, of late it has narrowed. But the wind picked up again today, and when that happens, it's full sails for the otherwise. Swallows whipping for kicks, the cat chasing her tail. A neighbor in the field, in response to a cordial but compulsory, how are you, said to me, well, and a deep, wind-whipped sigh. (sighs) They've started embedding a tracking code in the virus. I just don't know how this all ends. Me neither. But I know how it begins. It begins with a ship, and a compass, and a sextant, and a full sail. It begins, like so many of these things, with humans attempting to control their surroundings, and never quite succeeding. In this case, it begins with humans measuring the wind so that they can predict it, master it, and through it, 
control others. When we try to transcribe the wind, something is formed, a sigil, an embedded code. In her recent work, This is a Picture of Wind, writer and artist J.R. Carpenter digs deep to find the sigil. To, maybe not to code it, but to explore its encodings. J.R. Carpenter is a Canadian-born, UK-based artist, writer, and researcher working across performance, print, and digital media. Her web-based work, The Gathering Cloud, won the New Media Writing Prize 2016. Her poetry collection, An Ocean of Static, was highly commended by the Forward Prizes 2018. Her new collection, This is a Picture of Wind, Long Barrow Press 2020, is based on a web app of the same name. Carpenter's work is extremely influential in the worlds of digital literature and of landscape writing, and like many of her multifaceted projects, This is a Picture of Wind touches both those bases. In its first manifestation, as a web-based mobile phone app, This is a Picture of Wind combined shifting, swirling arrays of language. Small branches in motion. Loud, distant thunder. Wet nights after the days. A breeze rakes the leaves. With new and reworked poems based on hundreds of years of English weather data and literature. Visit luckysoap.com slash a picture of wind to view and read the piece while listening to JR talk about it. I spoke to JR about weather and words, about wind and power, about mapping invisible systems like data and climate, and about the writer Vani Capaldeo, whose poetic response to Picture of Wind appears in the new Long Barrow book. I apologize for a few glitches in the technology of our conversation. I don't think they will impede your listening. They are but breezes raking the leaves. And now, taking us back to the storms of 2014, J.R. Carpenter. I was living at Sharpham House at the time, which is a very large 18th century house on top of a hill in South Devon, um, on the, uh, uh, overlooking the River Dart. And so sort of between Dartmouth and Totnes, so not that far from the coast. Um, and in February, 2014, it was just this immense storm. And you can imagine these, these sort of 18th century sash windows just rattling like crazy the house was taking a beating and I was meant to fly to Calgary the next day right to do some teaching at the BAMP Center and you know to get uh to get from South Devon to London to then get to Heathrow you have to go along that stretch of that very famous stretch of railway along um uh, Tingmouth and Dawlish and uh, past Exmouth and uh, uh, the you know it's it's bad at the best of times any bit of weather will slow down a train and I just had a feeling I was not going to make this flight and uh, I called my colleagues at the BAMP Centre I'd, I'd, I'd worked there 
over many years and I called them and I said, look, you know, trust me, you have to change my flight. The next morning, which was the morning I would have uh, had to go over that rail line, that was when the rail line was washed out at Dawlish. And I sent all my colleagues in Canada the video of the of the rail tracks just suspended in midair with this seething, um, the soil's very red there, so this seething red sea coming up. So talk about uncanny landscapes. I mean, it was a, it's already an uncanny landscape to um, to be going in a train right along the sea there. It's so, um, uh, it, it does feel uncanny because you're right on the edge of the sea and, and you feel like the train is sort of, Brunel loved it, that, that uh, seawall was designed by um, Brunel and he loved the sea and he actually wanted to have the rail line go across the sea at some point. <laughs> right. So, um, good, good thinking. Yeah, it's been a nightmare. So, uh, so actually, it was it was that image that that um, that video of the of the rail line just the the train the metal train tracks just hanging in midair. It was so visceral. Um, and so eventually, about three days later, I did fly out. I um, drove up to Exeter and caught the train from Exeter. And, um, and, and found myself in uh, Banff, which is, I don't know, three or 4,000 feet above sea level. I can never right. remember exactly, but it's, in, it's high altitude and extremely cold and dry in February. Yeah. I think it's around 4,000 feet. I can't remember. I mean, remember. That, is, that, is that at a point where you can feel it in your lungs, in your head? Oh, I was having it? nosebleeds. I had to get um, a, a humidifier for my room, plus the jet lag. Uh, so that, that corporeal experience of going from Devon, which was literally underwater, to to this sort of high altitude in Canada, and 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 keep in mind that the the uh, that most of Somerset was still underwater, and so the train went through Somerset, and right. um, you know we had very good friends in Somerset who'd been flooded, so I, I'd already been glued to the news um, regarding friends in Somerset who were being flooded, and then because it was storm after storm after storm that that winter and so i think the the flooding happened in january and then this this wind came in february and um i when i was in bamp i was you know i was i was teaching and mentoring and stuff but i was also just glued to twitter yeah and reading about you know the government response to all of these things and so i was having a very textual experience of of these vast right. phenomenon right the floods and the and the wind but I, my tiny little porthole my 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 access to it was entirely through text and that's really when i started to think about weather as text 
another aspect of it is that you're very suddenly in the course of you know sort of 48 or 72 hours experiencing these you know um air and wind are are, are those are among those things that you don't notice until they go crazy right so until you sort of you know it's 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 a gentle breeze or a rustling of the leaves until it's washing things out and you know and blowing down tracks and then and and it's you know a lovely breath of fresh air until it's filled with smog or you're at 5,000 feet. I grew up in um, rural Nova Scotia in mm. farming and fishing communities you know and so I know about weather <laughs> <laughs> and you know especially farming and fishing you know you know weather inside out and I've yeah. been obsessed with weather for years and there's there's a lot of it in my work but this, the difference here was, um, this was when I really got the message about climate change. Mm. This wasn't weather anymore. Right. This was, this was crazy. This yeah. was stuff that was not supposed to be happening. And it was happening, you know, storm after storm after storm. And this is when I started to really think, okay, well, you know, what can I, what can I do about this? What can I say about this? Right. And, um, and I would say also that by that point, I'd been in the UK for, I don't know, what, five, five years, six years. And it really rooted me in, in a local, a locale, but right. also local. It made me feel local to something. The event itself, or perhaps the event itself, coupled with your distance and your, you know, what you described as that textual relationship with the event. I think there's a thing, you know, when I when I teach or, or talk to students about this work, I talk about, uh, and, and because I was in the Southwest, I was, I was talking to a lot of students in the Southwest, and there's this thing about which side of Dalish you lived on. Because if you were uh, anywhere further west, we were, we were, the whole West Country was cut off for six weeks or something. It was rail replacement bus service, hell. And so it, you know, it really rooted me in a, in a, in, in a landscape that I had just been living in, you know, and, and then I felt, because, you, you know, I, d I didn't feel like I was from there, but I felt there in a different way. Yeah. And, and I think another important thing to mention, though, at the same time, totally un, seemingly unrelated, uh, a Canadian poet called Gillian Size had invited me to contribute to an anthology that was uh, called Tag. And so it started with one poem, and that poem was sent to another poet who responded to that poem. And the response was sent to another poet who then responded to that poem and so on. And so she sent me her poem to um, respond to. And although it had nothing to do with these, um, these events, it somehow focused my attention. Right. Because there were a few key elements in it. And, and, and you, you, you will find them in the year at Sharpham poem. The year at Sharpham poem in the book, This is a Picture of Wind, expands on the poem that I wrote in response to this poem that was sent to me. 
And it, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's like, there are all of these things like the weather and the storm and, and thinking about the materiality of textuality and all, all those things can go on in your head, but you need somebody to give you a, a prompt or, or a spark. Like most of the things that I do, um, it started off as this text. It, it started off as, um, so in the, in the book, there are three years of wind and one is called uh, uh, 12 months at Sharpham. And, and that has all 12 months, but I think that the first text that I wrote, it didn't have all the months. I think it had April, December, January, February, March. And that was the text that I wrote in, in response to Jillian. And, right, right. Uh, you know, that anthology has yet to be published. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess they've given up on it. But I can't wait. And um, there was something there. It was the kernel of something. I really felt it. And so I made a zine, um, which is what I tend to do in these circumstances. Because okay, I want yeah. I want something. So I made the zine and I was handing the zine out. And then there's a thing called the New Media Writing Prize, which mm -hmm. is run by uh, Bournemouth University. And they, in 2015, they added uh, a, an, another prize, a small prize called the Dot Award, um, which was my kind of thing it was an award for a proposal i sent this zine i sent this i sent the text and i said you know i want to make a web-based piece based on this text so mm -hmm. the the text really came first and 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 not just text in a computer file but this this form and it, and it's very important the zine because it's i had this shape in mind it was a zine made out of a single sheet of a4 because the 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 month poems had yeah. small paragraph shape to them so the way it, the way it looks on my phone yeah is actually pre-digital <laughs> in a funny way yes and not only that not only does the web app shape it was the web app shape informed by the zine but you know, the zine was formed by these small texts. I was thinking about um, uh, weather announcements in newspapers right, and right. almanacs. You know, yeah. farmers' almanacs. I grew up with farmers' almanacs and these small petits uh, annonces. They're called in French. You know, like ad advertisements. You know, for uh like ha ads text you know on that early newspaper thing yeah so, and that's when i say that i started to think about the, this material textuality i started to think um or textual materiality rather about how we've done weather all this time yeah. so you know weather was text weather reports in the newspaper and these and the and and weather diaries, and so I was researching a lot. Now, I'm not saying that I had all of this firmly in my head, but for whatever reason, 
like those things influenced me as a kid growing up on a farm and, and whatever, the, those forms were in my head. But for whatever reason, I, I made this physical form to create, the, the, to make these texts into these small paragraphs. As much as you're interested in the digital and e-literature and, and that, that, type of, that type of work, you want it in the way that uh, allows the text and the story to flourish as opposed to getting in the way. You know, I, feel, I find so much stuff that's digital is, just becomes about the app or about the... Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not interested in the digital at all in that sense. Um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the piece, whatever it is. And most of my work has a physical and digital and performative elements. And mm. none of them are the the finished thing they're all part of the thing some people have these conceive of these huge projects and then they go about making them and i i often think that i'm making a lot of very small things and then they turn out to be a gigantic thing but if i thought about it in 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 that scale i think it would just um overwhelm me so i just uh, go at it bit by bit These, these grand invisible networks that you're talking about, you know, the digital wind, cartography, um, a, a lot of this stuff is, is trying to put into sort of some kind of, some kind of text information and ideas that we, in a way, can never actually embody in that text. Um, it, does that ring true to you? Can you talk to some relationship of that point? some relative of that point, some cousin of that point? Sure, I think that there's a, there's a lot of system stuff um, that we've internalized now. And, um, well, uh, you know, a fair bit of my work has gone back to uh, revisit the moments in which that systemization, systemization? Sure. Let's say that's the word. That, but where those systems were being um, uh, codified. So for example, in This is a Picture of Wind at the beginning, there are the Beaufort poems. Yeah. And that was a big part of the thinking behind this work was the, was the Beaufort scale and the Beaufort scale drives a certain aspect of the digital piece. Um, it drive, it, 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 um, part of the poem is driven by the Beaufort scale. And so, you know, how did that come into being? How did wind start to become measured and why and it's because of ships and so therefore imperialism <laughs> and you know why do we call it imperial measure hmm. and so the thing is is we've forgotten all of that 
Mm. And we, we've, we've forgotten that, uh, you know, when we look at the weather on our phones, on a weather app in our phones, we, we've forgotten that it took, you know, hundreds of years of sail to even begin to come to a system through which we could measure and describe the wind so that we can look up the wind on our speed on our phone. Yeah. You know? And, and I, sp I spent about a year and a half um, hanging out at the Met Office. I was an associate at the informatics lab at the Met Office. By associate, I mostly mean pest, and I was just you know, yeah. asking them questions. And uh, they, the Met Office has the second largest supercomputer in the UK at the mm. moment. And um, it's full of old data. They, they thought that I would get really excited about all of the, their digital, you know, all of the gear that they have and all of this data. And yeah. I get really excited, in fact, that they have the, um, the National Meteorological Library and Archive. Wet old weather and archive of weather. <laughs> you know, they they have um, that's that's what they have is they have all the old weather and people don't people don't understand that you know the supercomputer is full of the old weather. That's how it predicts the future weather. Sure, yeah. And so you know, my my project, my larger project that you're alluding to is to you know to try and get people to to not just pay attention to even be aware of to observe these larger systems yeah and we tend to go because climate change you know so it's not enough to just look out the window and go yeah i'm not going to make my flight actually it turns out that that's not the first time that that seawall was washed out yeah and you know how, how can i understand this in a larger context in in relation to a larger world so I think a lot of what I'm doing is trying to call attention to these um, these larger patterns uh, that are informing us, um, but also these systems like measurement and how how the these systems that came in mostly in the early modern period and up through into the um, you know the sort of 17th 18th uh, early 19th century systems that um make our world now operable We live in East Anglia on an incredibly flat area above a valley. And um, uh, and the wind is just insane here. I mean, the wind is is truly like a part of our lives in a way that it never has been for me before. And um, and I look and we get the uh, the Beaufort. Um, I'm from Pittsburgh, so I say Beaufort. But anyway, <laughs> um, we get the Beaufort <laughs> on my app and and it tells me the textual description each time. 
you know, every time there's a warning, it tells me, you know, trees losing. It, it tells me basically something that I might see in your book um, about trees losing branches. And, you know, the, these are the various things that might happen under these circumstances. And it does seem as though that codification is a way of saying, it's okay, we know what's going to happen. Or I, I don't know, I'm just kind of riffing on that point. But, um, but do you think that there's something to the idea that by trying to be able to write down this idea in knots or write down the, um, the scale um, or even just temperature. It's a way of saying we have some control over this because we can name it. And once we name it, we have some power over it. Yeah, I mean, certainly the uh, Beaufort scale was, uh, you know, put into place. I mean, I don't think that Francis Beaufort actually invented it. I think Dalrymple invented it and lots of other people did, but Beaufort implemented it when he was head of the Royal Admiralty. And the reason he did it was so that the British could take over the world. You know, like it, it, it is a very imperialist, um, uh, that, that control that you're talking about is, is directly linked to you know, controlling shipping, controlling trade routes, and uh, controlling the post and the, the, the packet ships and all of those things. So, um, yeah, I think that we need these, these systems uh, in order to protect people, to be able to protect the weather, to, uh, flood, to give flood warnings and all of those things. Um, but there's also a legacy in there. Um, and a lot of this stuff, especially as pertains to wind, was developed because of the age of sail. Mm. And the age of sail is also the age of discovery, which is the age of imperialism and the age of, you know, great subject, subject, Ah, subjugation. Oh, I can't say the word subjugation right now. Um, but you know, so so I have uh, my um, um, my most recent web-based work is based on the archive of a French hydrographer. Yeah. And who, of course, is on a ship and and the which is being powered by wind, um, and he's measuring. Uh, these coastlines in the South Pacific and and they're already measured. I mean, people have been living there for, for thousands of years. It's a thing that I'm very interested in, particularly in English weather, is that there's there's so much very subjective language. Weather's weather's dripping with um, connotation that comes through descriptive language that has that's not uh, that's sort of totally outside of this quantifying or measuring or whatever. What what I was interested in. In this is a picture of wind was taking not taking the that style of very direct observation 
and stripping away any idea of uh, imposed exactitude, right. like, uh, you know, that it should be described this way or it should be described that way, and finding my own kind of what what is worthy of observation here yeah what is notable yeah. and you know and so what is weather yeah. is whether this tree is whether you know um the the swan right now and 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 then so i i wrote this year at sharpham in direct response to these things happening around me and then i wrote that the next year was um the year at Tottenham, and that was based. I went backwards, and I found um, a beautiful folio of uh, barometric observations made by Luke Howard, who was a nineteenth-century um, uh, British meteorologist, and he—he's the guy that named the clouds the names oh, really? that we use today. And my my previous book was called The Gathering Cloud, and I had yeah. worked extensively with um, Luke Howard's essay on the modification of clouds. But then I found at the British Library this this book of his um, uh, barometric observations over I don't know maybe a twenty year period in the early eighteen hundreds. So I went through all the Januarys and collected the bits that I liked. And then all the Februarys and collected the bits that I write, I liked, and 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 so on. And then I went through these blocks of texts and whittled them down into paragraphs that were all his words, but with the details and the uh, spacing and pacing that were what was compelling to me and what and how yeah. how i was you know this it's almost this um this form it's hard it's hard to describe this is getting into territory where i've not really tried to talk about it yet so it's very interesting but this, this there, there's so there's a there's a couple of things that i would say and and about weather and one of them is that it's always in the present tense so what they have in this piece what they have at the Met Office is all the old weather, and I love it. But in this piece, it's always in the present tense. That every, you know, month that's happening in in um, in the book and in the web pieces, it's um every phrase is as it, you know, it's very immediate. And I, I looked at a lot of weather diaries, and I was I was interested in the in the notation aspect, the brevity, and um, there's something about that that um, poetically and sort of technically, uh, I like short phrases. Yeah, and I think in them, and I write in them. I'm not sure if I'm attracted to this kind of weather diary form because it writes that way <laughs> or if i write that way because i'm influenced by these um uh, annotation forms and list forms but there's an affinity there for sure 
the the new work the pleasure of the coast um responds to the physical archive of a mm. french hydrographer uh called charles francois beautempre who was a, a close contemporary of francis beaufort and um he also he, he came through um and and this is practice led research you know he was he went on a circumnavigating mission right with uh captain d'entre castor and he uh you know so he learned his trade through um through charting the coasts as they were sailing mm. and then came back to france and became a uh you know he he innovated the the practice of hydrography and um he became uh quite high up in the whatever the french version of the admiralty mm. office is but i'm interested what i'm interested in is the field work yeah the experimental aspect of it and you know if i could point to uh any uh hint of activism in this and i don't i don't i wouldn't say that this work is extremely activist except <laughs> that i am advocating for observation mm. and that if people uh you know similar to what you said earlier that we don't tend to think about it uh well i think you're right i think a lot of people don't think about the weather until it's actually impinging upon them and i have thought about it a little bit more than most on account of being you know growing up on a farm and stuff but um i think that that i think that that is it actually a uh, fundamental of activism is uh, activism is stopping and actually paying attention and this the weather diary thing and noting not just the weather but then you know you start to notice more and more and the plants and the seasons and the animals and the habits and and you know it's it's a a point of connectivity having a relationship with the weather um and the climate you know that that becomes something that you could almost describe as activist this this thing that would have been a necessary part of everyone's life not you know in the grand historical terms not that long ago yeah i i think that we're we're suffering from a disconnect and um you know the, the, certainly the pandemic is uh you know is it is a result of this vast disconnect between how we use and abuse you know our our relationship with animals and our relationship mm. with their habitat uh or or lack of relationship and you know when when i started thinking about how, you know how can i think about climate change i make small things and then and then they turn into gigantic things but um i think climate change is one of those things that's so enormous people don't know how to think about it and um I found some very small ways in. There's this other point that I'd sort of like to talk through and I think it it's about response and and the idea of um 
that I'm not writing in a vacuum or not writing alone. Um, so this is a picture of Lynn, for example, draws on hundreds of years of weather diaries. And I read, you know, I read a ton of British weather. I read British nature poems and, 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 um, but also Daniel Defoe's The Storm. And, and so a lot of the language in, especially in the web-based work and in the month arrays in the book come from many, many, many voices. And I think a lot of my work does that. I don't uh, think about it in terms of quotation or appropriation, but more in terms of a multitude. And so um, I, I, I've mentioned response in terms of I'm sometimes responding to a theme or to a commission. Um, but I'm, you know, trying more and more to invite responses. With, this is a picture of wind. I wanted a, a, a poetic response for an afterward. And I asked Brian Lewis at Long Barrow to approach Banny. I'd never met them, but I know from from reading their work that they have a very similar uh, interest in and practice of intertextuality, and that they uh, are are incorporating multiple voices, and their 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 writing is sort of churning through a vast amount of text in a way that that I that I felt that I recognized. There was a fantastic email that Vanny wrote to Brian that was situating their response, you know, responding to their own response, explaining themselves a bit. And they said something about the way that I uh, was writing that I had never really observed about my own writing before. And it was, but they talked about breath in a way that I found really interesting to me. And um, it was to do with this, these shortened, these very short phrases that I use a lot in the work. And he talked about this intake of breath, this, this breathing back. And there's something, and, and I'll read a passage in a minute that, um, that I hadn't considered at all before. And it's exactly why you want to get a, 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 a response from somebody else. And I think that it really galvanized some, or clarified something for me around um, the, the body in the work that, okay, I'm talking about wind, I'm talking about these massive systems, but, there's all, but it also relates to breath and the body and the way that I'm, the way that I'm writing has not a breathlessness, but a kind of a, a, a breathing back that that's like a, a, a very bodily response. And I, I'm thinking about Aristotle, who, who's constantly talking about exhalations and, mm. and vaporous steams and stuff. It reminded me of a line in a poem by Elizabeth Bishop, who... Uh, the Americans think is American, but she had three Canadian grandparents. So and she, <laughs> there's a, there's a thing in the moose, which is a, a poem where she's leaving her maternal grandparents 
furnished house in uh, Nova Scotia and driving on, she's on a bus driving to Boston. And she talks about the way in Nova Scotia, people say yes. And she says, yes, that peculiar affirmative. (gasps) Yes. A sharp indrawn breath, half groan, half acceptance. That means life is like that. And it, it's it's not a particularly compelling passage, but it's a it's a thing that I had not thought about at all until Vanny responded to the way that the breath was working in this piece, and I thought oh, it just reminded me of a certain a certain way of uh, uh, and and, and uh, that I hadn't heard since my childhood. So there's a there's a lot of stuff that you know you don't know what you're on about until until much later and you see these these um these patterns or these or or, and sometimes it really takes somebody from the outside to observe them so as much as i'm um um uh, i willfully acknowledge how how or gratefully acknowledge how much i've um gleaned from other authors i'm i'm just also so grateful to to people who i've asked on purpose to respond to these things and they've you know they've given me stuff that i would never would never have come to on my own As a North American, I mean, I, I, I'm, I feel like English is not my first language here. And, you know, the, the English propensity for um, uh, clearing up showers. Give me a break. It's fucking raining. <laughs> and and uh, oh, uh, sunny intervals. I think you mean mostly cloudy. But what, what, what I was interested in was more like, uh, with with this is a picture of wind was more about vernacular that's on the one hand very particular to me but on the other hand if I can come up with my vernacular why can't anybody thank you for listening to uncanny landscapes we'll be back soon with the next installment my guest was J.R. Carpenter and her new book is called this is a picture of wind published by Long Barrow Press The digital version, and many other works, are available on her website, luckysoap.com. The music was Heavy Rain and Title I, Stage One by Chris Cannon, chriscannon.bandcamp.com, with thanks to Chris for permission. The title theme is by the Belbury Poly, courtesy Ghostbox Records, and the Uncanny Landscapes icon is by Stefan Musgrove, Firebrand Creative. Additional special thanks to Lucy Greaves. I'm Justin Hopper. You can contact me via justin-hopper.com or on Twitter, at OldWeirdAlbion. More installments coming soon. Follow or subscribe if that's an option, or keep a lookout on the wires. Until then, remember Lynn Hedgenian. No, happily, I'm feeling the wind in its own right, rather than as of particular pertinence to us at a windy moment.